blue wire. Rosen traded to the Dolphins. I couldn't be more excited to become a Dolphin. Rosen looking down the field, and his pass is going to be caught for the touchdown. And running around, circling. Oh, look out! Brachowski didn't have the angle. Death, taxes, and me being late on the newest episode of Fit It to Win It. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Fin It to Win It. We are nearing the close of the 2019 NFL season, and with it comes the end of the painful part of the Band-Aid method that we've seen the Dolphins implement over the course of uh, the past 10 months. And make no mistake, Since the Dolphins made sweeping changes to the organization back in January of 2019, what's 11 and a half months ago, uh, the Dolphins have endured a very, very painful stretch of their organization, but they've done so with vision and direction and uh, a targeted purpose, which I think is something that the Dolphins have generally lacked over the course of Stephen Ross's tenure as the owner of the team. And that's what I want to get into today on the show. I want to look at the last decade of the Miami Dolphins, how everything has kind of come to a head and forced the Dolphins into a situation where this was the only option that this football team had. And I think that becomes pretty apparent. Uh, I wrote about this for the Draft Network uh, today. Uh, blame game, who is to blame for the 2019 Miami Dolphins? And and the series that we're running at the Draft Network is generally centered around what happened with a team and why their season's off the rails. And for the Dolphins, the season's not off the rails. So from that perspective, it's a little unique because this is exactly how the Dolphins envisioned their season progressing. They knew this team was going to be bad in 2019, even by their standards. And for the record, I cannot think of anything more appropriate for the Miami Dolphins than to go 2-1 and down the stretch and finish this decade at 70-90 and because this team has felt like they're destined for 7-9 and every single year for the rest of eternity. And uh, they've at least broken that trend, right? This team is 3-10. and We'll have an opportunity uh, to win a couple more football games, playing the New York Giants, playing the Cincinnati Bengals. Which, ironically, uh, if they win those two games, they're 5-10 and 10 with the Patriots left to play, and the Patriots will have playoff seating on the line, so you're going to get their best shot. But 5-10 and 10, equaling 5-11 and 11 with the Washington Redskins game that Miami chose to go for the two-point conversion instead of kicking the extra point going to overtime at home when they had all the momentum – Blah, 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 blah. That should have and could have been a win if the team either got the two-point conversion or if the team had elected to take things to overtime with all the momentum. And then the New York Jets game that just happened this past week in which the Dolphins are up by two. It's third and 17. The Jets were going to have to go for it near midfield in the final minute of the game on fourth and 17, but the, the refs bail them out. This team could have very easily, depending on how the next two weeks go, if they win these two very winnable games against the New York Giants and the Cincinnati Bengals, this team 
could have and arguably should have been 7-9 and nine this year, which is incredible if you really stop and think about the roster that this team came in with at the beginning of the season and then with attrition, with injuries, and losing the entire secondary and the entire offensive backfield, and at points of the last month, losing every single receiver they started the season with. It's been ugly. But I think there's a lot of optimism. But the the source of today's show is this article that I wrote for the Draft Network. Who is to blame for the 2019 Miami Dolphins? There's no one to blame for this team being bad this year because that was by design, but... Who was responsible for the toxic decade of the 2010s, and especially the last three or four years, uh, paints a pretty vivid picture on why this was the avenue the Dolphins had to take, why the Dolphins had no other options. This, This was the course of action for the Miami Dolphins to tear this thing down, hit reset in a drastic and significant way. Um, I outlined five potential candidates. Uh, Of the potential candidates, there are two that are still in-house. Chris Greer, the current acting general manager, and Stephen Ross, the owner of the football team. I called upon two candidates who are no longer with the organization, former vice president of football operations Mike Tannenbaum and former head coach Adam Gase. And I also called upon the New England Patriots because they inevitably do have a role to play in why every single team in the AFC can't seem to get out of their own way in the last decade. But let's start with Stephen Ross because I think Stephen Ross bears the largest burden as to why the Dolphins have struggled to find themselves in consistent competition. Uh, this team, Stephen Ross invested 50% ownership in this team in 2008. By 2009, he was the majority owner completing the purchase from Wayne Huizenga. And in the 10 years since, it's been 10 years, uh, the Dolphins have had one winning season and the Dolphins have had one playoff appearance and the Dolphins have never won the AFC East. And you can point to any number of issues, whether it was bad decisions at the quarterback position, whether it was bad hires in the coaching staff department, bad hires in the front office department. But I think all of the issues that the Dolphins have had uh, really just come down to Stephen Ross's organizational structure of the team over the course of the last decade. Since Ross bought the team, Ross, up until 2019, insisted upon every single prominent figure in the Dolphins organization responding and reporting directly to Stephen Ross. And if you don't know why that's a problem, look over the history of what this structure in 10 years has given us. It gave us a feud between Jeff Ireland and Tony Sperano. Rest in peace, the late Tony Sperano. Um... Back in 2010 slash 2011, these two could not seem to get along. They could not be on the same page because the team was underachieving. The team was average. And the team had some significant talent. Jeff Ireland and Tony Sperano both reporting to Stephen Ross 
results in Tony Sperano coming to Stephen Ross and saying, well, I need different players than the ones Jeff Ireland has given me. And Jeff Ireland saying, well, the players I've provided are fine. The coach isn't getting the, the most out of the talent. It's his fault. So there's this kind of finger pointing where you're, you're fighting in-house. You're fighting against each other instead of being on the same page. This culminated with uh, Stephen Ross making overtures at Jim Harbaugh, who was at Stanford at the time, despite the fact that Tony Sperano was still on the payroll as the team's head coach. So imagine your boss, you find out, calls up somebody and inquires if they're interested in taking your job. They don't fire you first. They don't even express that they're going to fire you. They call up your buddy from college, and it's, hey, I got this potential opening. Would you be interested in taking it? Oh, let me think about it. A couple days go by. No, I'm good. And then you're expected to continue on with your job as if nothing ever happened. And that's exactly what happened with the Dolphins, where Stephen Ross made a pass at Jim Harbaugh in 2011 to come coach the Dolphins while Tony Sperano was still the head coach of the team. Harbaugh passed on the opportunity, and then the Dolphins expected Sperano to forge ahead like nothing ever happened. There's a clear divide between Ireland and Sperano. Ireland ultimately won that out as the Dolphins in 2011, the season following those overtures at Jim Harbaugh, were 4-9 and nine and fired Tony Sperano. Not great. Now, fast forward another two years, and there's another in-house feud amongst Dolphins management because... Stephen Ross kept Jeff Ireland, and they hired Joe Philbin. Well, Jeff Ireland is already at this point having a feud with Dawn Aponte, who was brought into the Dolphins organization initially by Bill Parcells to run the salary cap. And Dawn Aponte had earned herself into uh, favorable positioning with Stephen Ross. Ross trusted her. Dawn Aponte starts coming into conflict with Jeff Ireland, and then Joe Philbin comes into the picture. And the team has Donna Ponte and Joe Philbin going to Stephen Ross saying, Jeff Ireland's got to go. And Jeff Ireland saying, well, I'm not the problem. And so the Dolphins, one full season after firing Tony Sperano, have one year of overlap. And then there's conflict in the organization again. And then Ireland is fired after the 2013 season. Ross then insists that the next general manager of the team comes in and works with Joe Philbin, who was just hired two years ago. Dolphins couldn't seem to get anybody to bite. They're on to like their fourth option. They end up opting for Dennis Hickey, who lasts one year with the organization. And the guy that they were trying to handcuff their new general manager to, Joe Philbin, lasted another 20 games as the head coach before being fired himself four games into the 2015 season. Like, can you see how, at some point, Ross has to have one guy that reports to him, a general manager, a VP football operations, 
whatever. And then below him is the next guy. And below him is the next guy. And they just, it reports up the chain of command. And then Ross can look at the problems at hand and, and decide, okay, this is a problem here. This is a problem here. This is how high up the ladder I need to go. When everybody reports to you, you get this smorgasbord blend of finger pointing. And that's really what the Dolphins dealt with for the first half of this decade. And then you fast forward to now, and the Dolphins have now finally instilled a linear chain of command where it's Stephen Ross, Chris Greer is the guy who calls the shots, and then below him is Brian Flores. That's big progress. But even in between 2015, when Philbin got fired, and now you had to deal with the Mike Tannenbaum issues and the Adam Gase issues. And that is a whole different can of worms because Mike Tannenbaum's credentials in getting hired as the VP of football operations were questionable at best. And we're going to get into that after the break. And the power that they gave Adam Gase when Adam Gase came in here as a first-time head coach was pretty stunning too. But that really sums up from Stephen Ross's perspective, you're the guy who sets the standard. You're the guy who sets the organizational flow chart. You're the guy responsible for hiring and firing everybody. And by having this disorganized, chaotic chain of command, Stephen Ross's hand in what is effectively a sunk and lost decade for the Miami Dolphins is extreme because it, it's caused fighting in-house. It's really fed a lot of bad habits. But we got to talk about the other candidates, and we are going to do so in just a moment after this message from today's sponsors. Listen, talking about erectile dysfunction isn't easy. Usually we just brush it off or blame ourselves saying things like, I just lost my mojo. Or we avoid it altogether with excuses like I had a long day at work or sunny, sorry, honey, I'm just not in the mood. But with Roman, it is easy to talk about ED. With a real doctor who can prescribe real medication, it's simple, safe, and totally discreet. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your own home. The doctor will work with you to find the best possible treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, Roman will ship it to you with free two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward, simple, and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash BlueWire and complete an online visit. Erectile dysfunction used to be tough to tackle, but now there's Roman. Complete an online visit today to connect with a doctor and take care of it. Just go to GetRoman.com slash BlueWire to get a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's GetRoman.com slash BlueWire for free visit to get started. GetRoman.com slash BlueWire. You still with us? Okay. Just buckle in. I, I, I voiced my concerns with Stephen Ross, and I will say this for Stephen Ross. Stephen Ross at least deserves credit for figuring out the issues at hand, and what he's instilled in 2019 has me very optimistic for what the future of the Miami Dolphins organization is going to hold because he's finally learned from some of his mistakes. But 
even amongst all the the fighting between Sperano and Ireland and Aponte and Philbin and Hickey, all of that aside, I think the worst move Stephen Ross made was hiring Mike Tannenbaum to serve as the VP of football operations for the Miami Dolphins over the course of four years. Because when you overview what his seven-year tenure at New York with the Jets was, it was problematic. He had an affinity for making splash moves. He had an affinity for uh, kicking the can down the road with salary cap and signing contract extensions that were probably a bit ambitious. Look at the, the Mark Sanchez one. And you saw all of that come to fruition with the Miami Dolphins, where Tannenbaum, one of the first moves they make once Tannenbaum gets signed in January of 2015, is they sign Dominic Sue to a six-year, like $114 million contract with like $60 million in guaranteed money. Like they gave him quarterback money for Dominic Sue. And after one season, guys, one season. They restructured that contract because in year two, Sue was scheduled to have a $28.5 million salary cap hit in 2016. Financially speaking, you can't swallow that pill, right? So they restructured it. They deferred all his guaranteed money to later years of the contract. And you fast forward two more years going into the 2018 season, 18 months ago. And the Dolphins cut Sue. And the Dolphins cut Sue. And even now, in December of 2019, Indominus Sue is still on the Miami Dolphins' books for $13 million against the salary cap this year. And he hasn't played it down for the Dolphins since December of 2017. It's been two years since Sue has played a snap, and he's responsible for $13 million because big money contract, which is then subsequently restructured to manufacture more salary cap space to sign more 30-year-old veterans that are most likely over the hill, but we're trying to plug in holes in the starting lineup so that this team can compete in the year that they're signing those players. If you don't see how this is a problem, take into consideration the Dolphins did the same thing with Rashad Jones, signed him to a monster extension, and entering the 2018 season, restructured that deal. Fast forward to the 2019 offseason, this past spring and summer, the Dolphins are in a rebuild, and they would, it was never made official, but they would have liked to have moved on from Rashad Jones. Well, guess what? Rashad Jones, if the Dolphins would have cut him before June 1st of 2019, would have been responsible for a $25 million dead cap hit this season. Dolphins said, we can't do that, and we can't trade that, because nobody's going to take a 31-year-old safety with a bum shoulder to pay him $14 million in salary. Because the Dolphins converted a bunch of his guaranteed money over into base salary. Because they needed salary cap space to sign Robert Quinn to come in and play for the Dolphins in 2019 or 18. That was Tannenbaum. 
The Dolphins did the same thing with Ryan Tannehill, where they gave him a big contract extension. And ahead of the 2018 season, despite the fact that he was uh, coming off missing the entire year beforehand, they restructured it to buy a handful million dollars more salary cap space. And then they just kicked that guaranteed money down the road. And you fast forward to now, when Greer took over the team, he offloaded as many bad contracts as he possibly could. So that included paying $1 million of Robert Quinn's salary to make him a tradable asset so they could get a sixth-round pick for him. That includes Ryan Tannehill, who the Dolphins paid a marginal amount of his 2019 salary uh, and the Dolphins are responsible for $18.5 million of dead cap in 2019 to Ryan Tanhill because the Dolphins restructured his contract for a few million dollars in 2018. We've already talked about the $13 million that we're on the books for for Sue. We didn't even talk about the, the TJ McDonald extension where the Dolphins extended him in 2017 while before he had served like a six-game suspension and before he'd ever played a down for the Dolphins. Tannenbaum's given out contract extensions like Halloween candy, and then you wait 12 to 24 months, and Tannenbaum needs the cap space, so he's going to restructure that contract and just push the guaranteed money down the line. So when Greer takes over the team, what is he supposed to do? He's got to do the Band-Aid method. It necessitated this super aggressive offloading of assets to build it back up. Now, Chris Greer taking over the team did not need to uh, trade Laramie Tunsil, make a Fitzpatrick, Kenyon Drake. But those were opportunities where Minka just didn't want to be here. And we've talked about that on this show plenty of times. Tunsil was a deal way too good to give up on. It is what it is. And I think even though Greer's been serving as the team's general manager since 2016, his work alongside slash underneath who the hell knows who's responsible for what uh, with Tannenbaum, Greer's work in the draft has been really good. Uh, you consider 2016 netted the team a stud at left tackle and Laramie Tunsil, a stud at corner and Zavian Howard, while also adding key contributors like Kenyon Drake and Jakeem Grant. That's one draft class. That's really good. 2017. Uh, yes, the Charles Harris pick was a bust. I wish they never would have made it as somebody who does a lot of draft evaluations. Harris was not a player that was very high up on my list. But Greer's hit big in the second round with Raquel McMillan and on day three with what they've been able to get out of Devon Godshall. Huge hit. 2018 was Minka Gusecki, who is continuing to develop quite nicely throughout his second season, and Jerome Baker. Like, he's hitting at least an average of Two and a half to three starters per draft class. That's really good. And then when you factor in, well, Tunsil, Drake, Fitzpatrick, those guys aren't on the team anymore. You're right. But the team invested two first-round picks and a third-round pick to get there. And despite having depreciating assets play on the team, the Dolphins now have three first-round picks, a second-round pick, and a conditional third uh, day three pick back for those players. They increased their return on investment despite drafting players and getting multiple years of play out of them for depreciating assets. 
That means you pick good players. That means you did a good job in offloading those players when the time came based on the Dolphins now as an organization saying, we need to go all the way back to square one. So we don't want to give out any big money contracts to players that we don't feel are long-term visions for our team and that can't be maximized in other ways, which is how they chose to handle Laramie Tunsil. That brings us to Adam Gase. Because Adam Gase was another big one. Uh, when the Dolphins hired Gase, they gave him control over the team's 53-man roster as a first-time head coach who was also calling plays. Despite the fact that there was a general manager and a VP of football operations, quote-unquote, above him. That's unheard of. <laughs> and as you might expect, with an ego the size of Adam Gase's, it didn't play well with the players. So like Billy Turner's cut after like four games and Turner went on to start in Denver for multiple like double digit games. And this year signed a big money contract in green Bay and has been the starter at right guard for the Packers every single game this year. Jordan Phillips, Adam Gase couldn't get along with and just got tired of him and cut him. And Phillips went to Buffalo and is playing the best football of his career and plays really good. Anytime he plays the dolphins. Jarvis Landry's the most famous case. Jay Ajayi was another famous case. Uh, Jarvis Landry being traded in the name of salary cap space is one thing, but also locker room chemistry and, and his dissatisfaction with his usage and how he felt he was a, a more prominent player. Um, traded to Cleveland, and the Dolphins got peanuts back, and Landry's getting 15 a year, and the Dolphins decided to sign Albert Wilson to $9 million a year and drafted... Uh, Kalen Balage with the draft pick they got back. Uh, it, it's been Gase's ego was a problem. And then you factor in Gase really wasn't a good coach. The team wasn't very disciplined underneath of him. The, the players did not perform like Ryan Tannehill, what he's doing in Tennessee versus what he did under Adam Gase. Devontae Parker, who Gase at one point refused to play, even though he was healthy and his agent was claiming that he was healthy, and Gase says he's not, and then Parker comes in against the Texans and puts up like 100 yards. Very, 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 very messy. But to answer the root question, who is responsible for where the Dolphins had to become, had to turn to, in order to hit reset and get this thing turned around? And this is step one of that process. Stephen Ross's disorganization and lack of clear flow chart for responsibilities is culprit number one. Mike Tannenbaum's lack of judgment and poor team building philosophies is number two. And Adam Gase stripping away talented players is problematic in its own right. That serves as number three. If it doesn't work from here, then we can blame Chris Greer. But he's got to build the team in his vision first. Thanks for listening to Finn It to Win It. Look forward to talking to you guys early next week, I promise. Come on back and see us.